Okay, um, Matthew 12, 1 to 14. At that time, Jesus went through the cornfields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some ears of corn and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Thank you very much, Paul. And uh, let me add my welcome. It's uh, great to see you this morning. It's great to see uh, new faces. Great to see some old friends returning as well. Uh, let me give you a very warm welcome. My name's Danny, and uh, if we haven't met, hopefully we can meet later over a, a sausage or a cup of tea or something like that. Well, uh, can I encourage you to uh, keep that passage uh, open in front of you uh, that uh, Paul just read, and you'll find an outline uh, on the inside of the uh, notice sheet as well. And when you uh, read the Bible's accounts of Jesus, such as uh, this Gospel of Matthew that we are looking at this morning, one of the most surprising things that you learn, I think, is that Jesus is hated by the very people you would most expect to love him. He is rejected by the very people you would think would welcome him. And this section that we have just read is a perfect example of this. Uh, just glance back with me to the paragraph before our passage at the end of chapter 11. Joe began with this this morning, but look at it again, 11.28. Jesus said, "'Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here is Jesus in both his greatness and his grace. 
greatness because he is offering to carry for us the heavy loads of fear, worry, regret, anger, disappointment, everything that afflicts us in life. He is offering to carry it for us. He is great and gracious because he is offering to do it for free. He is offering to remove forever the crushing weight of sin and guilt and judgment. So can I ask you, can you get a more beautiful offer than that? And from one who is described as gentle and humble, what is not to like? But now look with me at the final sentence of our passage, verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. And my question is simply why? Why do these decent, upright, spiritual leaders of God's people, who for centuries actually have been living with the hope and expectation for this longed-for rest to come that had been promised in the Old Testament, when they hear it announced on the lips of Jesus, immediately plot his destruction? Violently, shamelessly, murderously, Why do the very people who ought to be welcoming Jesus with open arms reject him? Why do the people you'd expect to love Jesus hate him? Well, it turns out that it's because in making the offer he does, Jesus destroys something that they hold dear. And that something is religion. Now, I don't know if that's a surprise for you to hear, If you've ever thought of Jesus as a religious figure himself, or perhaps when you talk to your Christian friends, if you're not yourself a convinced Christian, maybe you think of them as a religious person and you're not. Or perhaps when you come into a a church meeting like this or a building like this, you think you are coming to a religious institution, or perhaps you think that Christianity is one religion among many. It may be a surprise. But what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus is actually against religion. And the religious person, as we'll come to understand that in a moment, will always end up being against Jesus. And so here is the big truth I hope we're going to take away this morning. That Jesus has come into the world not to offer religion to the world, but to destroy religion and to offer in its place something far, far better. That's what I hope we're going to take away from our time this morning. Well, we're going to do that by looking, as we always do, at the passage. We're going to go through it uh, bit by bit. And I've got two headings to help us with that, two points. And I can tell you that the first point, just so you can sort of pace yourself, the first point is just slightly longer uh, than the second point. I hope that's helpful to know. So the religion that kills, firstly then, in verses 1 to 8. Now, verses 1 and 2 set the scene for us, and it begins, you'll have noticed, with an accusation. Let's read those verses again. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. The big idea that runs right through the passage, on the surface at least, is very easy to spot, isn't it? It is the question of what is lawful, what is right in the eyes of God to do and not do on the Sabbath. The Sabbath we are talking about, of course, is the special day of rest 
for the, holy, uh, for the people of Israel. The Old Testament rule was fairly simple. It said there was no work to be done on the Sabbath. It was a day of rest for everybody, for men, women, children, servants, employees, even, according to the Old Testament law, domestic animals had a day off on the Sabbath. And most Jews in Jesus' time observed it with religious zeal. The Roman general Pompey, for example, when he was attacking Jerusalem in AD 63, he was able to get right up to the walls of Jerusalem and build siege ramps on the Sabbath because he knew there'd be no attack from the Jewish soldiers who were having a day off. But of course, the question would then arise, what constitutes work? The Old Testament says you're not to work on the Sabbath, but what is work? And a lot of ink had been spilt by the religious leaders over the years who added to that simple rule a whole heap of regulations, 39 regulations to be precise. For example, they said, this is the Pharisees, not the Old Testament, they said, if you carried something with your hand or on your shoulder, you were breaking the Sabbath, but if you carried it on the back of your hand or with your foot, or with your mouth, ear, or hair, you were not. I've been trying to picture what that would look like in practice. You know, the baby's crying. I've got to pick up the baby. How am I going to do it? (laughs) And you begin to see that they're transformed a good thing, a day of rest and relaxation, of feasting and fellowship, into a joyless burden of rules and regulations. Now, this explains what is happening in verses 1 and 2. So just picture the scene as Matthew describes it. Jesus and his disciples are taking a walk through some fields. Uh, Presumably they're having a, a Sabbath stroll after an exhausting week. They are resting. The disciples have a little bit peckish. No one's brought some sandwiches. Notice they never do, do they? And they reach out and pluck a few grains of wheat or barley. Now, if you've ever done this on a country walk, you'll know that this is no big deal. You kind of, you know, grab a bit of grain, barley, wheat, whatever it is, you have to kind of rub it between your hands, you blow off the chaff, and you can eat them. It's not exactly getting the combine harvester out. It's not exactly farming. It's not Jeremy Clarkson, you know. And you'll also know it's not exactly a feast. It's no big deal. It's nothing. It's just a a little movement of the hands, and the hands then go to the mouth. And so don't you think it's slightly weird verse 2, that the Pharisees are watching this so closely. They're observing the disciples as they have their Sabbath walk so carefully that they can see this little casual movement of the hand, plucking some grains, popping them in the mouth. It's as if they are wanting to catch them out. And so verse 2, they immediately pounce on Jesus and condemn his disciples for breaking the Sabbath and him for allowing them to. Now let's pause there and think about this. What is going on here? Because this is all very strange, isn't it? This is all very alien to us in one sense. Now on the surface, I guess it looks like the Pharisees are just a bit pernickety about rules. Like the guy in the meeting, you know, there's always one who says, I'm sorry if this is you, it's never me, I'm sorry if it should be probably, but the guy in the meeting always brings up copyright, GDPR, health and safety, and half. Of, and I, know, I know that we should do those things, but some of us roll our eyes, but we know they're right. 
We've got to comply, the law's the law. So you could say, well, it's, it's a little bit like that. These Pharisees are just a bit pernickety about the rules. But the problem with that interpretation is it makes Jesus look like he is careless about the rules. It makes him look like a libertine in contrast. As if this whole passage is actually really about the interpretation of some minor religious rules. And Jesus comes along and says, you Pharisees, you're a bunch of killjoys. It's just a few grains of wheat. GDPR, just don't worry about it. Relax, chill. Now, we would like that, wouldn't we, if that were the case? But that would be to miss the point. Let's look a little bit closer and see what is really going on here. It's always important to notice the context. And notice that, first of all, Jesus has actually provoked this issue himself by talking about rest in the previous sentence. Do you notice that? The way Matthew just goes straight on from the end of chapter 11 to the beginning of chapter 12 on the same day. Jesus offers rest. He's offering to remove heavy burdens. And in the very next passage, isn't it interesting how we now have a passage about the Sabbath and about rest and about the Pharisees actually imposing burdens on people again. It's also interesting that it concerns food. The Sabbath was a day of feasting and fellowship. Sunday lunch is not a modern tradition. The Pharisees would rather see someone go hungry on the Sabbath than break one of their little rules. And so if you just uh, look at verses 28 and 30 again, let me rewrite them in the Pharisees' language, a kind of inversion of what Jesus is saying. Come to us, all who are weary and burdened, and we will make your burdens even heavier. Take our yoke upon you and be crushed under its weight, for our yoke is hard and our burdens are heavy. You see the issue? We're beginning to see something very significant here, aren't we? That this is not a minor debate about some rules. But it's actually a very sharp divide between religion that brings bondage and burdens and death on the one hand and Jesus on the other, who is actually running in completely the opposite direction from the Pharisees and offering something completely new, completely different. He is offering rest and freedom and life and joy. You see? But there's more. Let's dig a little bit deeper. Because we need to remember what this Sabbath was really for in the Bible story. As, by, as Becky explained earlier, in the Bible's account of creation, there are six days. God made the world in six days. And he rested on the seventh. And we see in the Bible's account that the seventh day was a day without end. It was a day that stretched on into eternity. And so the seventh day contained all the goodness and the blessing of the garden paradise, and it made it last forever. And we notice as we read the creation account that the man and woman are created on the sixth day for the seventh day. That is God's purpose in creating humanity. And so the whole point and purpose of creation is that God was willing to share his eternal rest, this garden paradise, with the man and woman in a perfect, everlasting, unbroken world. Now, that is very significant, isn't it? More significant than what you do on the day off. To think, if you would, that each one of us here, every one of us in this room, the children over in the hall, every man, woman, girl and boy here this morning has actually been created by God 
for the seventh day. We've been created by God out of his good purpose to bring us into this garden paradise the Bible calls heaven. We've been created for rest, for life with God. And the Sabbath, that is the seventh day, the rule-keeping, the seventh day of rest, all it was for Israel was a reminder of that perfect eternal rest that was always God's purpose in humanity. And so the purpose of keeping the seventh day in the Old Testament law was never some kind of attempt to get right with God or to score points with God. It was God's gift to Israel to remind them, to give them this little taste that they're not just a a cog in the machine, that there is more to life than work and toil, that there is this future coming where God will restore all things, where he'll reverse the curse of sin and death that has fallen on our world, that he will welcome us into his eternal blessing. That's what the Sabbath day was for. And therefore, we begin to see, don't we, how significant this little conversation is between Jesus and the Samaritans, not the Samaritans, the Pharisees. There is more debate. This is more than a debate about the interpretation of some rules. In offering rest at the end of chapter 11... Jesus is saying something huge about himself. He is claiming that he and he alone is the doorway into eternity. He is the doorway into heaven. But to understand how he can say that, he who, remember, is humble and lowly, how can he say that? We need to see his response to their accusation in 3 to 7. Now, in verses 3 to 7, Jesus responds to the Pharisees' accusation by giving them three case studies from the Old Testament. And what's interesting here is that in each one, he actually cranks up the controversy even more. It's as if there's a little kind of hole, and he's put a stick in it, and he's wiggling the stick to kind of prise them apart to make sure we can see the extreme distance between himself and the Pharisees. Now, these verses are slightly complicated, But I want to go through them quite quickly so we can see the big point. Verse 3, he answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. This first case study concerns a time in the history of Israel, 1 Samuel, where the soon-to-be king of Israel was being hunted to death by the current king Saul. And David and his men, like Jesus and his disciples, are hungry. But instead of gathering a few grains, they actually go into the temple where on any day of the week you would find 12 loaves of bread laid out, the holy bread, which is there for the priests to eat. And so here's the thing Jesus is saying. There is a law that says only the priests can eat the bread. David ate the bread, and yet he is not condemned. Conclusion... There is something bigger than God's law. What can be bigger than God's law? God's king. And Jesus' implicit argument is, if that were the case for David, how much more for me? Well, the second example is even more shocking. Verse 5, haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? A similar kind of logic at work here. The temple was the very center of Jewish life. It stood as God's presence with his people, the means that God related to his people, 
through sacrifices going on day after day that the priests offered, including on the Sabbath. In fact, on the Sabbath, they would double the sacrifices. And so while God said to Israel, you've got to have a day off on the Sabbath, the priests were working doubly hard on the Sabbath. How is that possible? It's a bit like the police breaking the speed limit when they put their blue lights on. There is a law that says you must not break the speed limit. The police break the speed limit. They're breaking the law. And yet they're not guilty of breaking the law. How does this work? Well, conclusion, there is something bigger than the law, which is the temple. And Jesus now makes his point explicit. Verse 6, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Here is where I suspect a gasp would have gone up from the Pharisees. Is Jesus really saying in his own person that there is something more significant more worthy, more important than the entire temple, that is, than the entire religion of Israel and all its sacrifices and priesthood and regulation. Is he really saying that? Well, if we're in any doubt, the third example takes us a step further. Verse 7. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Jesus has quoted from the Old Testament history. He's quoted from the law. He now goes to one of the prophets, which reveal God's purpose for the entire religious system. And he says, look, you've misunderstood the whole thing. What God was on about all the time was mercy, not sacrifice. All of the law, the temple, the priesthood, the Sabbath, was never about men and women trying to get to God to keep his rules, but God offering them mercy and grace. They'd actually got the whole thing wrong. These experts in the law, these Bible-reading religious leaders, had actually misunderstood the whole point and purpose of God in the Old Testament. They had put burdens on people when God intended rest. They had brought guilt when God intended mercy. They had made it about works when God intended grace. And ultimately, they were leading people to death when God was leading them to life. They have misunderstood the entire Bible. Their whole religion is upside down. Well, if that's not shocking enough, Jesus now reaches the shocking conclusion, verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. It's hard for us, really, to understand how shocking this would be for them to hear. The Son of Man is a term that Jesus picked up from the Old Testament applied to himself. It comes from the book of Daniel, where Daniel says one day, this Son of Man will rule the entire universe. And so there is no higher authority than the Son of Man. Which is why in verse 8, Jesus says, the Son of Man, that is him, is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, this whole Sabbath story that we've traced back from creation to the temple, the kingship, the whole Old Testament story, it is all pointing to him. And so if you look back again at 11, 28 to 30, understand what a huge claim he's making. He's saying that, come to me and I will give you the rest of the seventh day. That I will take you into the perfected creation that God always intended. Everything the Sabbath 
pointed to, has now arrived in me. I am the doorway into God's future. And so don't worry if you didn't get all the details of verses 3 to 7. The big point is that Jesus has escalated this argument to the maximum degree. He could have met them on their own terms. They could have had a a nice civilized rabbinical debate about the law. He could actually have referred them straight back to Deuteronomy 23.25, which says, you are allowed to pluck some grains of your neighbor's field as you walk through it if you're hungry. But instead, he cranks it up and up and up. He gets the stick in and he pries it apart because he wants them to see that this is all about himself. It's like one of those boxers. I love it when the, uh, the boxers, I don't watch boxing, don't understand it. Who does understand it? But the bit I love is the, the pre-boxing press conference when you know, Tyson Fury, Anthony Joshua, whoever, whoever do all this boasting. It's fantastic. It's ridiculous. I'm the king. I'm the best. No one has ever lived who is as powerful as me. I'm better than Muhammad Ali. I'm the greatest. And so on they go and on they go. And they're both saying it. They both can't be right, can they? As uh, was proven uh, yesterday, in fact. And none of us take them seriously. It's just part of the performance. It's a way of intimidating your opponent. It's, It's just part of the game. But Jesus is actually a little bit like this here, isn't he? Jesus, who is humble and lowly, I'm greater than King David, God's ruler on earth. I am the king of kings. I'm greater than the temple, God's presence on earth. I'm greater than the Sabbath rest. I am the one who this whole world has been created for. Humble? Lowly? Doesn't sound like it, does it? And if all this is true, then can you see what happens to the religion of the Pharisees? What place is there for a religion of rule-keeping if Jesus offers all this for free? What place is there for religious works if Jesus has come to bring mercy? Their religion was a religion of death. But Jesus has come to kill that religion dead. No wonder they rejected him. But before we come to the conclusion in verse 14, Matthew has something else to show us. See, it's not good enough for Jesus to kill their religion. We need now to see what he's going to replace it with. And so second point, more briefly, the Lord who restores in verses 9 to 14. This section follows the same structure as the previous one. An accusation about the Sabbath, followed by Jesus' response, and then a conclusion. The accusation, first of all, verse 9. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man was there with a shriveled hand. In the previous section, the need was a pang of hunger. Now we're in the synagogue, and the human need is much more serious. Here is a disabled man with a lifetime disability, and all the deprivation and indignity that that entailed in that world. But the Pharisees have one thing still on their mind. Verse 10, looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Notice how their question exposes the ugliness of their position. For them even to ask the question reveals that they know about Jesus' greatness and his grace. They know that he can heal the man. And they know he will want to heal him. 
They are fully aware of Jesus' greatness and grace. They don't hate people because they do not believe his claims, but because they do believe them. And they know his claims of bringing their religion to an end. Well, let's look at Jesus' response. This is where Jesus now goes on the offensive. And again, he escalates the case to the maximum. I want to show you this. Because he wants us to see the true purpose of the Sabbath and how much the Pharisees have perverted it. So verse 11. If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Let's look at this again in three steps. First of all, at the most simple level, Jesus is exposing them as hypocrites. You know full well, he says, that if one of you had a sheep and it fell into a pit on the Sabbath, you wouldn't think twice about stretching out your hand to lift the sheep out of the hole. You wouldn't leave it till the next day. Even on economic grounds, you wouldn't do that, let alone out of compassion. And so what he is about to do for the man is no more work on the Sabbath for him than reaching out and pulling the sheep out of the pit. What hypocrites. But secondly... Notice the very deliberate contrast Jesus draws here between the man and the sheep. Verse 12, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? These religious leaders, in their hypocritical concern for their rules, have dehumanized the man to below the value of a domestic animal. They've not only lost the plot on the Sabbath and the whole purpose of the law, they've actually turned it upside down. So they would prefer pain and misery to continue than their precious man-made rules to be broken. And so look at what Jesus says in verse 12, and notice the irony of it. Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. This should not be read as a kind of legalistic conclusion to the debate. It is a stinging rebuke to their joyless, loveless hypocrisy. And the sheer ugliness of their religion. What else is a Sabbath for but for doing good? And what more fitting demonstration of the whole point of the Sabbath than restoring to wholeness and health one of God's image bearers like this man? But there is more. We need to dig just a little bit deeper. And we'll see what Jesus replaces their religion with. He's about to turn it round the right way up. See, do you notice what animal he picks on for his illustration? He picks on a sheep. Well, sheep are quite common. A lot of them probably did have sheep. But it's interesting that throughout Matthew's gospel, sheep are used to speak about God's people whose great need is a shepherd to rule them well. And the great accusation against the Pharisees, is that they have been negligent shepherds who care nothing for the sheep. And Jesus is implying that the good shepherd is the one they people need. A shepherd like the one that David famously wrote of in Psalm 23, who will lead God's people to good pastures, who will restore the soul, who will bring rest, who will even lead God's sheep through the valley of the shadow of death. And so look again at verse 13, and you get a glimpse, don't you, of that shepherd at work. 
Here is the good shepherd, beginning with the man in front of him, beginning the great work of restoration that God has sent him to do for the whole world. And so Jesus uses this occasion, what for the Pharisees was a clever little trap. Jesus uses this as a demonstration of what he has come to do for the whole world. Here is the good shepherd reaching down to do good on the Sabbath because this is what the Sabbath is all about. A day of rest that pointed to the greater restoration to come when the whole world will be restored, when every broken thing will be mended, every tear wiped away, every image bearer of God brought to health and wholeness forever. What can you see now? why it is that they hated him. That the very people who should have welcomed Jesus rejected him because Jesus has reduced their religion to nothing. He's exposed its ugliness, its cruelty, for the killing thing that it is. And he's made it worthless by offering for free the very thing that they were making people work for. This is a good thing. But if you're invested in the religion, it's very hard to hear. This week, as Joe said, we've been having a, a week of take another look. We've been inviting people to come in and think about Jesus. And one of the ways we've done that is we've been offering free cake in the courtyard. It's been a fantastic week. Monday morning, I was sitting in the sun, chatting to people, eating the most delicious cake, and feeling amazed because I was getting paid to do this. What a great week it's been. All the cakes have been delicious. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, cake for free. What is not to like? Now, just imagine if you can, one of our church members who happens to work in a cafe in town that sold cakes. Pick the cafe of your own choice and imagine. And imagine if he or she, waiting on at the cafe, had in their apron a little pile of cake in the courtyard flyers. And imagine if that waiter or waitress, when they went over to the customer at the cafe to take an order, quietly said, you know, I can tell you where you can get better cake and free. Imagine how the owner of the cafe would feel if they found out. Now, whether or not that's based on a true story, I couldn't possibly say. I'll leave it to your imagination. But this is what Jesus is doing. He is offering for free the very thing they make people pay for. They say, do this and this and this and don't do this and don't do this and maybe you'll get to heaven. And Jesus says, all you've got to do is come to me. And I want to suggest that this is perhaps why Jesus remains such a controversial figure today. Because <clears throat> as it happens, we are a very religious bunch. So you think of the religions of the world. Wherever there is religion... There are people trying to win some kind of favor with God, achieve some kind of freedom, and the religious leaders are invested. But actually, in every case, I suggest to you, it leads to bondage and death. 
Think of the Muslim in the mosque, bowing down to Mecca five times a day, eating certain things, not eating certain things. The Hindu in the temple feeding their little gods. The superstitious Brit reading their horoscope, not walking under ladders. The devout Roman Catholic counting their rosary beads or going to confession. The Buddhist meditating, spinning their prayer wheels. Whatever religion you care to think about. And I'm not saying there's no good in those religions. But Jesus comes along and he simply says it's all a waste of time. Scrap it all. Scrap the whole thing. Come to me instead. Can you see how that puts a lot of people out of business? It puts a lot of noses out of joint. And if you look at the history of Christianity, it's religion that has always reacted with the most hostility to the grace of God. This is what happened in the 16th century when Martin Luther started reading the Bible and rediscovered this gospel of grace. The papacy persecuted him. Of course they did. Because they could see it threatened their entire existence. And time after time, when this true gospel is brought out of the Bible, the biggest persecutors are the religious authorities, hierarchies and denominations. But of course, you may think that Britain is a secular nation. But is it really? I asked some of the staff team on Friday morning when we were looking at this passage, I said, well, what is the modern equivalent of pharisaical religion? And one of the trainees, as quick as a flash, said, cancel culture. The idea that you can't say certain things, you can't hold certain opinions in public life, even on university campuses, without being condemned. You have to toe the line of wokeness on everything. And if you don't, you're out, and there's no mercy. That's a pharisaical religion, if ever there was. And like all religions, it's a route to burden and slavery and death. Yes, we are very religious. And Jesus says, come to me and I'll show you mercy. Religion is the way of death. Mine is the way of life. And therefore, verses 28 to 30 which of chapter 11, which at first sight looked like a kind of a nice, harmless saying, actually have a sting in the tail. Jesus is offering true Sabbath rest, but at the same time, he's exposing the ugliness of human religion. And so can I suggest to you this morning that if you thought Christianity was a religion, can you see that it's something quite different? And if you are a religious person, can I encourage you this morning to turn away from religion and come instead to Jesus? If you're someone who's been burdened by human religion, can I suggest to you that the only freedom you will find is in Jesus Christ? Let him remove the burdens from you. And do not let the Pharisee slam the door on God's grace. But it's possible you find yourself undecided. It's possible that you are sitting here thinking, well, I'm not with the Pharisees, I don't hate Jesus, but neither can I accept his staggering claims. Well, let me show you one more thing 
that may just tip the balance because the story actually concludes in verse 14 when the Pharisees plot how they might kill Jesus. We should not now be surprised that this is their reaction. He is putting them out of business. He is giving for free what they are making people work for. But here is the beautiful irony of the whole thing. It's when they kill him, which they will, for this very charge of breaking the Sabbath. It's when they kill him that they will enable him to fulfill the very promise he has made. See, Jesus, it turns out, has kept the law to the full. He's done every good work. It turns out that when he says he's greater than David, he is true. He is greater than David. He is greater than the temple. He is greater than the Sabbath. He is the doorway to eternal rest. But that doorway will only open when he dies on the cross. Because there he takes the burdens upon himself. That's when he fulfills his offer to carry our burdens and bring rest. It is as he dies on the cross at their hands that He takes all our religion upon himself, all our pride, all our rebellion, all our broken attempts to please God, all our proud religious good works, and he deals with it once and for all so that we might enter his rest. So read on. You'll see him hanging on a cross. And we are meant to see at that point The good shepherd reaching his hand into the pit, dragging the pit, the sheep up, an act of rescue, a lost world being found, leading us through the valley of the shadow of death to the rest on the other side. So here is the lesson for today. Beware the miserable burdens of religion which can only kill, and trust in Jesus alone, who takes you to eternal rest with God. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are sorry for the way we so easily fall for the trap of human religion and allow ourselves to be burdened by a yoke of slavery and guilt and death. Please forgive us. Please forgive us if we've missed the whole point of the Bible. We thank you that Jesus has lived, that he's died and risen to fulfill the Sabbath's true purpose and has brought restoration, life and hope by means of his own death on the cross. We ask that you would help us now to trust in the freedom and forgiveness that only he can bring and that we may look forward to that Sabbath rest free from all that is broken in this world. In his name we pray. Amen.